Greetings, building science enthusiasts, and welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Ultra Air, whole house ventilating dehumidifiers. Here at Positive Energy, we've been working with these dehumidifiers for years on many of our integrated mechanical designs, and we've seen such great results for both the health and comfort of our clients. We even have an Ultra Air dehumidifier in our office, and we absolutely love it. When you're working with an airtight and well-insulated building, you quickly notice the outdoor air infiltration restrictions that occur, which allows pollutants and moisture levels to accumulate inside. So when you think about it, properly controlling that moisture in your home will definitely improve the effectiveness of your air sealing and insulation efforts, and will definitely improve the health and comfort for your client, your family, you. Just imagine being able to run your air conditioner at a higher temperature without feeling uncomfortable, and knowing that this improved comfort is coupled with fresh filtered air. These are just a few of the many benefits of incorporating the Ultra Air dehumidifiers into your home or your project. It really is an easy choice to make. To learn more about the best strategy for controlling moisture in your home, check out ultra-air.com. That's air with an E at the end. And see how a whole house ventilating dehumidifier can work for your home or project. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to construction, design, and architecture. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay, hello, hello, and welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. I'm Christoph Irwin, your host as always, here with my producer, Miguel. Hello, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking about an aspect of enclosures, right? You've heard us talk many times about enclosures, how they need to do the heavy lifting uh, to create the interior conditions for the occupants. And as we all know, it is all about the occupants, or will be one day. So today, specifically, we're going to be talking about stucco with two colleagues of mine and experts. And uh, stucco is a cladding system. And basically, one of its main jobs is to, uh, besides looking lovely, it's to protect the control layers beneath, right? These are the rain, air, vapor, and thermal control layers. Uh, One of the reasons we're doing this podcast today, for those of you listening live or soon after this was released is that next Friday, October 13th, 2017, there's a local conference, a full-day conference here in Austin, Texas about stucco. So those of you local listeners, come on. And uh, those of you really motivated non-locals, all right, come on to Austin. It's a great city. Let's talk about stucco. Second weekend of ACL. And it is the second weekend of ACL. That was Matt Carlton. He's one of our guests. Matt is an engineer, and Matt, please introduce yourself briefly. Hi, yeah, this is Matt. I'm a principal with Wischany Elsner in Austin, and I've been working for WJE for about 22 years. Uh, my background is in structural engineering, and I got into enclosure consulting uh, 15 or so years ago. And uh, along the way, a lot of our work uh, has always focused on forensic assessment of cladding systems, uh, buildings with problems that Mm -hmm. we go in and look at and figure out how to fix. And then sometime along that process, we also started getting calls from architects that uh, wanted some consulting from us to try to avoid some of the problems that we've been seeing. Oh, so there's problems with stuff. Okay, before we get into that, that was Brian Roeder, our our second guest today. Um, And he's an architect with Paige here in Austin. We're in his conference room. Thank you. Welcome. And uh, please introduce yourself. 
Uh, Brian Roeder, I'm a principal here in, with Page. We're an architectural and engineering firm, full service. Uh, we've been practicing in Texas for over 100 years, have offices across the country, and um, stucco is uh, near and dear to sort of the vocabulary of Central Texas architecture. So I guess one of my passions is if we're going to use it, let's let's do it right. Yeah. And let's make sure we get rid of all the... Uh, some of the negative that's out there because people are still doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. Which is which is amazing. Yeah, so that's coming up. So um, we're doing this full day event and I've been talking to people about it and actually I've had several people say to me, how can you talk about stucco all day? You know, and the reality is you could talk about stucco all week or longer. So hopefully by the end of this episode, you listeners will get at least a sense of how it can be talked about all day, if not longer. So I'm going to start, and we're going to be talking about the very basics. We're going to start by asking you guys, what is stucco? What does it refer to? Is it a, a product, an assembly? Either one of you, go ahead and start. Well, I mean, just strictly speaking from a technical sense, Portland cement plaster is referred to as stucco, and it's defined in ASTM C926. Mm -hmm. It's a mixture of Portland cement, hydrated lime, and sand. And uh, those, those fundamental constituents have been uh, that way for probably 100 years or maybe a little over hmm. since, since Portland cement was event, invented mm -hmm. around the 1900 or so. Um, they started slipping in there. Of course, it goes back thousands of years before that. Uh, currently, our modern stucco systems are, are usually applied over a expanded metal lath that is fastened to the side of the backup wall. Uh, which could be a framed wall, uh, it could be a solid wall made out of concrete block or something like hmm. that. Uh, and as a system, hopefully they're, they're, one of the components would include a weather barrier, flashings, and uh, other uh, associated features to manage water and, and make the building air and water tight. Okay, good. Yeah, we'll come back to that control there. But from a, an architect's perspective, is it a go-to cladding? Uh, well, it, it has its place in the market because of its cost. Uh, it's a it's a very reasonable um, building skin, and so a lot of times when you're working through a project and you're <laughs> dealing with um, the knowns, which is budget, uh, stucco or a replacement of maybe a more expensive product mm -hmm. does come into the conversation. And um, done properly, it's it's a it's a very acceptable. Uh, skin. Mm -hmm. uh, the durability is, is well known and tested. As Matt mentioned, it's, it's been around for quite a while in its sort of modern form. And so from an architect's standpoint, if you, if you can stand in front of your client and you're, you're speaking about, well, what systems work? Uh, stucco done properly, it works and it will provide a good uh, skin mm -hmm. that will perform, uh, you know, admirably for the, for the life of the building. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting as we've been talking about stucco getting ready for this event, I've been seeing it everywhere and I realize it, it kind of goes invisible until you start to think about it. like, what is that cladding? What is that on that wall? Yeah. It's, it's, it's everywhere. So it's been around in its current form for about a hundred years. How long has it been around generally? I mean, do you have a sense of that? Big picture. <laughs> uh, you can go way back. Uh, certainly stucco in its sort of single coat slather formula, if you will. Uh, has been around for thousands of years over uh, through the Romans and, and working its way through the, the centuries. Uh, that's partly why people still come to it and they end, they're endured by its qualities, its warmth, 
um, the timelessness that the product kind of brings mm-hmm. to mind. And so even though we've, we've adapted it to sort of our modern building uh, sources and technology, it, it's, it's been around for, for longer than us. <laughs> yeah. And like you said, done right, it can last a long time. And we've already alluded a couple times to it. It might not always be done right. Let's talk about, we know what it is, and is it all one thing? Is there one flavor of stucco, more than one flavor? Are there different types of stucco? There are lots of types on the market, all trying to kind of find their place uh, with the cost models that are Mm -hmm. out there. And Mm -hmm. so uh, I kind of put it uh, sort of three categories together. There's traditional three coat that I think we'll talk maybe more in depth here later. And uh, that's what most people remember, and that's what you'll see on these quality products that uh, that have stood the test of time. Hmm. The market does have uh, one coat stucco out there, and you have to have a proper substrate. Uh, but the synthetics that are able to be derived and the chemistry behind those synth- synthetics allows one coat to be applied. And in the market, there's a there's a place for that. There's a there's a real sort of um, advantage of, of having a product that gets you what you need, but not at the same cost price point. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the thor- third bucket, and there's a bunch of derivatives of this, is EIFS, or the exterior... Can you spell that? Or? <laughs> E-I-F-S. Exterior Insulation and Finish System, which most of the country calls EIFS, but in Texas we say EFIS. Yeah, I've heard it both. <laughs> E-F-S. Y'all. 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 <laughs> Okay, so back to the synthetic. Uh, is it still the same ingredients? It's not, right? No. So te- from a technical perspective, it's different. A- acrylic polymers are added to allow that single coat to really try to do more with less. Is it cementitious? It has Portland cement in it. It's heavily polymer modified, so you can think of it almost as something between a... a Plastic. Uh, well, something between <laughs> something between a, a traditional stucco and a paint, almost, because it's got it's much thinner. the The actual Eve's lamina is three sixteenths of an inch, maybe a quarter of an inch thick, or at most, probably three sixteenths of an inch. Um, whereas a traditional three coat stucco is seven eighths of an inch thick. Right. Okay. Wait. So you, you just blurred the three buckets for me, though. So there's three coat, and then there's one coat, one coat and then there's Eve's. Right. And the Eve's has the one coat. But EFS is particular because of the substrate. Okay. Can Get you explain it. that? One of you? Sure. Well, the insulation part, that exterior insulation and finish, that the insulation is part of an EFS system. Okay. So you'll have the the um, backup wall has a rigid insulation board that's put on first. I see. And then the EFS lamina is, there's basically an EFS base, base coat that gets troweled on the insulation and then a fiberglass mesh that gets kind of worked into that wet base coat, and then they'll come over it with a, uh, a finish coat. Oh, it's trowel applied. It's, it's trowel it's on it. It is trowel. Well, they might act, deposit the material sometimes with a, with a, a spray, but then they come back and trowel it. Uh, I think most commonly it's trowel applied. The, uh, and it's that's just, Eves. That's Eves. Um, and you know, it's not, so a, a three coat stucco has a scratch brown and finish coat okay and they call the scratch coat scratch coat because it gets trowel on and then they take a notched trowel and they make horizontal grooves in it kind of like if you've ever set tile on a floor and you use notched trowel mm-hmm. and then uh, they'll let that cure properly 
properly cure <laughs> for the right right you know right moisture conditions and we can get into that sort of stuff here in yeah. a minute but uh, they'll let it cure and then they'll put the brown coat over that and the brown coats where they really try to make sure things are straight and true um, because that's pretty much the finished surface uh -huh. the finished coat is much thinner uh, and it's really going to give you your texture and your color there are different uh, pigments that can be put in the finished coat um, they can use acrylic finished coats as well to give it a, a larger range of colors oh, okay. and textures why, why is it brown why is the second coat brown coat that's the term it's not necessarily brown it's it could be formulated the same way as the uh, first coat. Yeah. I, I always thought it was because it was supposed to be kept wet for a certain period of time or something like that. Moist curing is part of the... Brown coat or scratch coat and brown coat? Well, curing is, is one of the <laughs> fundamental hard heartaches and sort of difficulties of stucco. If you imagine a building construction site and the uh, enormous areas that are being applied Oh, right. You're trying to provide a semi-controlled environment <laughs> in your outdoors, in the sun, in the dust. And different orientations it, it, of sun. Yeah. The in, west side of the building can heat up really quickly. Oh, yeah. yeah, in the in the wind. Oh, yeah. And all of those are going to be these X factors on how properly the stucco is cured. Mm -hmm. And just like concrete, we want to slow cure that. We want to bring it along at a constant level and not let it sort of get these shock factors of a morning... Uh, morning sunrise that really uh, dry it out. Mm -hmm. Good. And, and so you said slow cure. What is slow? Is it a day? Is it days? It, it, if, you could get, if you could get a day of moist curing, at least that's tremendous. Mm -hmm. I mean, and so they'd have to re-wet it to accomplish this, correct? Or no? There's a couple ways to cure. Uh, most of the specifications that you see used today, they talk about fog curing. And it's a you said fog fog curing. Okay, and it's not used often, at least not that I've seen. Matt, maybe you've seen it on our projects. Um, we try to, uh, and and the other thing they can do, which really does help, is put some sort of screens up on the scaffolding if they're scaffolding a building. If they can at least put screens up to protect it from the wind, uh, and then that also helps kind of con contain that controlled environment that yeah. you're talking about. That they can do some fogging in there to keep that humidity level high, which hmm. if you can imagine it, in summer in Texas, you're gonna cut off the wind and make it really humid in there. It's not exactly pleasant environment to work in no. for the guys. But you know what basically what you're doing when you're curing stucco is it's a race between the hydration of the Portland cement, which gives it the tensile strength, and the stre the tensile stresses that develop due to drying shrinkage. Because that's one of the, the things that you're dealing with with a Portland cement-based product like stucco is that it, it's going to shrink as it dries. That makes tensile stresses and can cause cracking if it's not done if it's not cured properly and if you don't have proper joints in it. Fascinating. A lot of times, if you're not getting fog curing in these well-defined scaffold stages that have the visqueen or the 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 felt burlap, uh, you're getting just essentially a wetting action. Uh, much like a, a pool contractor would be trying to keep the gunite wet, mm -hmm. uh, they're going to re-wet that with just a, a sprinkler and a and a hose, uh, just to keep it moist. And in some cases, you're kind of dealing with the complexity of the the trades that are out there uh, and sort of the tools that they have. And mm -hmm. that's sort of the the fundamentals of finding the right 
contractor that really knows what they're doing and understands the nuances of why we are requesting in the specifications fog curing. Wow. So I had thought we'd talk about this later uh, in the failures uh, section, but you mentioned cracking. So I've heard it described confidently by seeming experts both ways that cracking is just an aesthetic issue and it's not a problem. And I've also heard it that it, it can be uh, putting the like the water control under additional stress or something. Which, it, which is it? it? It's both. Okay, there you go. Uh, first of all, you have to talk to your client and make sure they understand this product is a, a naturally based product, so it's not monolithic in its core. I mean, it's a mixture. A lot of times, the sand is on the ground. The, the lime is on the ground, the cement, Portland cement's on the ground, and those guys are picking it up and mixing it. If you can get a bag mix, you can improve the consistency of your product. Whoa, so it's not even consistent around the enclosure. But the point to the matter is there will be cracking. There's no doubt. The, the, the question is, is it cracking that's expected or is it cracking that's occurring in a non-expected manner? And that's where... Uh, architects and envelope consultants talk about controlling those areas. So you're working to reduce the areas that the shrinkage cracks are going to occur. Because mm -hmm. ultimately the crack opens up the skin to any sort of degradation of the lath or... The skin, you mean the outer layer of the The outer stuff. layer. And that can then perpetuate, you know, oops, that can, you know, continue the process of degradation and then you start to get all the sort of uh, nuances of efflorescence and, and other sort of ghosting that can start to occur by the water getting behind there. So in, in terms of can we, what, what Brian said about controlling the cracking, that is the term that we use. Is, you know, I think of it kind of like you know, when you're, you, uh, you eat right and you exercise and you do all the things that are supposed to keep you healthy and you're trying to mitigate or control the risk of a heart attack mm -hmm. when you get to be a few years older than us. Oh yeah, my um, <laughs> But, you know, there's no guarantee. I mean, the right. trainer on TV the other day had a heart attack. I forget the, the guy that's yeah, on Biggest Loser. Wow, um, no, I didn't He know that. had a heart attack in the gym. Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, conversely, you've well, got guys <laughs> like the, uh, the oldest World War II vet that's still alive, lives over here in East Austin somewhere, and he smokes a cigar every day. So there's no guarantees one way or the other, but over time, the, the research has shown and experience has shown that if you do these things consistently, it's going to reduce the cracking that you have. So when I say these things, I'm talking mm -hmm. about curing, I'm talking about proper installation of the lath and the accessories, proper joint spacing, um, proper framing, subframing. Proper support, the backing wall that you're talking right. about. Right. So there's there the the all of these measures that we incorporate into a good stucco project all contribute to a quality job. They reduce cracking. They give you a longer lasting uh, finish on the building. And a lot of times we'll end up working on new projects with contractors that will say, "Well, you know, I never do that, and it I and it's always fine." Or, or, you know, my last 10 years I've been doing jobs this way and I don't do that and it's fine. Well, you know, maybe they've gotten lucky. Um, you know, I, I can't speak to the outliers out there, right. but... Yeah, some people don't wear seatbelts, right? Right. <laughs> some people alive. get away without wearing seatbelts, but, you know, that doesn't mean that 
it's a, it's a good practice to do it mm -hmm. that way. Well, let's go into that actually. So, it, so the, the cracking, the quality installation depends on a lot of things being done right on a lot of different levels. Um, on all, in, any of these three buckets, traditional three coat, uh, single coat, or the EFS, EFIS. And I guess tied in here, there's a set of standards associated with these quote unquote rules that we're gonna be talking around. Yeah. Well, that's a good starting point because the standards are even argumentative if you uh, if you're out there in the field working really? with contractors. So um, there's like disagreement between standards. There's disagreed. Interesting. Uh, this how the standards are interpreted is I guess the biggest disagreement. And mm. and Matt talked about lath and um, here in Texas we have a quality contracting base that. Um, includes essentially associations. So there's trade associations plus their national standards. And in the uh, stucco world, there's ASTM. And here in Texas, there's uh, the, the Texas Lath and Plaster Association. And there's a, essentially a, an ongoing debate. Well, that's national and state too. It's... Right, but the national standards will apply to the Every, product here. Mm -hmm. Ongoing debate on, on how to treat the, the control joints in the stucco and how to treat the lath behind the control joints in the stucco. Mm -hmm. So these are some of the some of the challenges and sort of uh, conflicts that have to be vetted out at a pre-construction meeting mm -hmm. or in the detailing of the job because most folks they show an elevation, they show stucco and they expect everything to happen as planned. But mm -hmm. the problem is all you're asking is the finished product and all of the Mm -hmm. The mixing ingredients that get to that finished product have to be carefully selected. Mm -hmm. And you can't really see them necessarily. No. I, I think we should actually in, kind of inject in here, and maybe Matt, you could do this. Could we define some terms, right? So for instance, laugh. Right? But if Please. you want to go back to the beginning of your question, because Brian went right in there to uh, some of the, one of the pressing issues in the industry. I didn't let it out you of the box yet. Jumped in there. Uh, but if we go back to your, your question a minute ago. Please. So a modern stucco system that we commonly see on, on residential and commercial buildings would include some sort of framed wall, you know, either wood or metal studs, a sheathing, which is usually 5 8 inch thick on wood, in wood, excuse me, in residential projects, a lot of times it's going to have an oriented strand board or OSB sheathing, and then it'll have a weather barrier over it. The code requires two layers of weather barrier if it's over wood sheathing. In commercial and institutional construction, you usually see a fiberglass-based gypsum sheathing product, uh, still about 5 eighths of an inch thick. Over that, it's going to have a air and weather barrier. Uh, it only requires one, but around here, it only requires one layer over a gypsum-based sheathing product interesting but around here the the uh the standard practice is to still put two layers because it does a couple good things to put two layers over it if you put a really nice uh, fluid applied air and weather barrier or a sheet applied but a really high quality air and weather barrier the process of fastening lath and putting accessories on the building lath is an expanded metal 
uh, mesh. There you go, throw into here. It's okay. like a chicken wire or something. Well, there is chicken wire lath that gets used. And oh, really? particularly, yeah, no, in California and certain areas, that's the predominant kind of lath. Expanded oh, metal lath looks like a bunch of little diamonds. Mm -hmm. um, if you've ever seen a pickup going down the road with a headache rack in the back that has little diamonds on it, yeah, yeah. this is smaller than that, yeah, but yeah. It's, that's expanded not, not metal. Not that heavy, too. We're, it's the, the ounce weight is much lighter. Than okay. Yeah, 3.4 pounds per square yard is uh -huh. a standard weight for uh, an expanded metal lath. So that's got all sorts of sharp edges on it. And, 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 and the holes are about the size of a pencil or a pen. Yeah, yeah, like just about. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the two layers does a couple things. Uh, if you let's say you put your really nice fluid applied air barrier on, and then you come back with what we call a paper backed lath. Mm -hmm. That's got a building paper that comes glued on the back of the expanded metal lath. And when you put that up, it creates a slip plane between the stucco and the backup wall, yeah. which kind of lets that stucco float over the surface. It's fastened but it can expand and contract mm -hmm. with the drying shrinkage that we talked about and also with thermal movement because all of these walls, in Texas, a west-facing wall, even if it's a light color, it can still hit 140 or 150 degrees in the summer in the direct sun. Yeah. And so they can do a lot of moving uh, back and forth and that, that could be a daily cycle that that wall cladding goes through. And so uh, having that slip plane in there helps it to move. It also creates a capillary break, which allows water that goes through the stucco, even if it goes through that building paper, it's got a drainage plane that allows it to, to get down to your flashing and your weeps and drain out of the wall assembly. So it, it serves a couple of functions to have two layers and, and we certainly like that. And we see that on most commercial yeah. projects nowadays. I mean, the, the two layers Matt's referring to is the, the building felt that's uh, essentially behind that lath. It's sort of a standard practice, standard of care that you see um, for that protection and that sort of drainage plane. Mm -hmm. But you say it's not required. It sounds like it's a darn good idea. It is a really good idea. Technically, <laughs> two layers is only required over wood-based sheathing. But that, there's lobbying to prevent that from... Why is there pushback from the industry or no? I don't think so. It's intelligent it's, people it, say it's, it's not, not terribly expensive to put that paperback lath on. Yeah, uh, but fundamentally, we don't see paperback lath specified and used as much as we just see the building paper as a secondary added. Yeah, you could do it. So building paper and and uh, you know roofing felt is uh, is can be used. Building paper can be used. They're both an asphalt saturated paper product. Yeah. Um, if you do it separately, it is a little easier to, it, it, rather than having the stuff glued on the back of the lath, if you have a separate layer that's put on, it's a little easier to integrate that with your flashings and make sure everything is shingle lapped properly. And tie um, your accessories to it. Yeah. Okay. So that does work a little better mm -hmm. than having them come in and just put the, the paperback lath on. The paperback lath works fine, but it's a little bit more effort if you want to get everything properly lapped. Got it, good, thank you. Um, so before we go into control joints and lath, how would this work on a, like a concrete block wall, a CMU wall? Well, you can reduce the steps. Yeah, what is that, how does that change? Um, there's, a, there's probably still debate on whether lath is required against a, a block backup, but you, you can apply it directly to the block. There's so enough. no fluid applied, no 
there is an exception in the building code. There is an exception to the requirement for weather barriers. If you're putting a stucco directly over a concrete block, you can create what's called a barrier system that's dependent on shedding all the water at the face of the masonry. I've Does, done it in Mexico, actually. It, it is, that is... Does that work? Directly applying stucco over solid mass masonry is the oldest form of stucco. You, but the drainage plane gets pushed all the way to the to the forward face, and so uh -huh. so you, the cracks there really matter. Then. It, it and yeah, it, and and you know in in like construction in in old Mexico and in Italy and Rome, you're probably talking about a 16 or 18 inch thick solid mass masonry wall. Monolithic. Uh -huh. So if you get a little bit of water through that stucco, it's got a tremendous. That wall has a huge absorption capacity, mm -hmm. right? And then. Dry out. It can dry out over time. You probably don't, you may not have an, a, a conditioned interior space, so the wall can dry to both sides and you don't have a huge vapor drive pulling water in. It's not like they slapped up uh, a cellulose faced mm -hmm. interior wall board and they're cooling the heck out of it, creating a huge vapor drive. So, you know, those old school masonry walls very durable there's hardly any metal in them there's nothing to corrode um if they used an old burnt lime plaster they may have to come out and whitewash and you'll see that on those old walls where they would come out and you know once a year they'll they'll get out and they'll kind of whitewash the walls with a new layer of lime-based plaster and it's just they they just renew their walls it freshens them up makes them look good and renews the water repellency of the walls yeah so you, you put in something in there that i, I want to pull out because you said and they probably weren't having conditioned space inside, which reduces the vapor drive and moisture drive. So is it okay to do on a CMU wall when I do have air conditioning here in deep in the heart of Texas? It's still, it's still code approved, right? Well, you still need some insulation on that wall. It is still code so to If it was CMU, question. would it be eaves? No. No, you could still put a, a standard three-coat stucco or one-coat right on stucco the CMU. right on the CMU. And the insulation would be on the inside. Right. Remember, a lot of times you see people that try to uh, to skim over CMU and you get that ghosting. Of so the, the purpose to build it up and get away from a single-coat or one-coat product is to remove that potential of ghosting. And so that's the so reason. So ghosting is seeing the backing wall it's seeing, pattern. It's seeing the joints, joints, joints of the block. And you want to flush struck those joints to try to make it a little bit um, easier for the craftsman to to get a nice smooth surface. Okay. Okay. So you have a backing wall. You have lath. You have three coats. That's traditional. If it's CMU, you have a backing wall. You might or might not have lath. You might have three coats. But then you have the second bucket, the second type, which is the single coat. How does that change on both? Um, CMU substrate and non-CMU substrate. Well, one coat stuccos are are they're put on similar to traditional three coat stuccos. Okay. They're called one coats, but really they're probably going to be at least two. It's, oh, funny. Instead of <laughs> instead of a scratch and a brown, you're going to do both of them at the same time. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. They're thinner. They're like usually you do a whole lap of the first coat and a whole lap of the second the same day, or are you do them both right at once. It, you instead of a scratch and a brown, you just put one coat on. You're taking it out of a bucket. And you just apply it. And you so it you put one coat on, and then you come back and put a finished coat over it. And so those are usually a proprietary pre-bagged mortar that that uh, 
probably contains some admixtures in there. Um, usually they're going to have a polymer modifier in them. They may have some fibers to help increase the tensile strength of the mix and keep it from just randomly cracking. Fiberglass. Yeah, chopped fibers. And then a lot of times they'll have an acrylic finish coat that goes over the top of it. Wow. And the total thickness is going to be between three-eighths of an inch and half an inch. The only form of, of traditional stucco that's recognized in the building code is three-coat stucco. So the one-coat stuccos, since they're proprietary, they have to go through a process of submitting to the International Code Council for an evaluation report. Mm -hmm. And so that's an important thing if somebody's going to be putting a proprietary, like a one-coat stucco on their wall, they need to get a copy of that evaluation report and make sure that it's something, basically that evaluation report is something that you could give to a building official and say, here, my one-coat stucco is, is approved for use under the International Building Code. Awesome. Sometimes stucco, like other masonry areas, are used from a, for fire protection as well. So that's one of the reasons you need to make sure what you're using is, is acceptable. Wow. Okay, so that, that ties into maybe a relatively timely topic in the news. EFS is stucco over insulation, which is a, of a petroleum derivative. Since we're right. And wasn't there something in London where a, a building caught fire in that tragedy layer? Yeah, yes. It's tragedy. Terrible tragedy. And was that related to code not being followed, or tell me? Um, well, the report is yet to be fully um, published, so I think okay. everybody needs to sort of this tap. This is speculation, everyone. <laughs> tap <laughs> and, and wait for the final analysis. But what it, it looks like is on the early onset is that... Um, the exterior insulation was a big driver of the flame spread and the flame migration up that building. Um, the insulation is a petroleum product that ignites extremely uh, well, mm -hmm. and because of the vertical propagation, it was able to race through that building in record time. In fact, I think the stories are, you know, that they just couldn't even, you know, begin to uh, amass it. So, wow. two issues there: one is the insulation. Two is the actual skin product, which we know is a metal panel that probably more than likely did not have a fire-resistant core to the panel itself. So you have basically two fuel loads, the insulation and the fire core, wow. or the non-rated fire core of the mm -hmm. panel that are racing their way up the building. And just to be clear, you know, foam plastic insulation is pretty common here in the United States. The but we have our codes here require that on a building of any significant height more than two stories uh, i think it's 40, 40 feet, feet is the limit that the cladding if you have foam plastic insulation on your building you have to pass a certain really pretty tough fire test i don't think the building in london would have passed that test um, so not only did it have the foam plastic insulation that brian was saying and it had aluminum composite metal panels with a flammable core, but they also had a, a big air gap between the insulation Ooh. and the metal panels. Wow. And they didn't have blocks between, uh, usually, yeah, usually you're going to want to have some sort of fire stops in between levels of a building 
one of the just the fundamental yeah. concepts Compart of modern fire science is that you want to compartmentalize spaces so that if a fire gets loose in one floor or one space of one part of a building, it can't go from floor to floor to floor up the building. And their particular design did not have those types of fire stops at the floor lines. So it was a really kind of a perfect storm wow. of bad circumstances with the flammable insulation, the airspace that acted like a chimney, and it just convected a huge amount of hot gases up that just spread the fire throughout the cladding system and the flammable exterior face and the lack of fire stops. So all those things together are, you know, were, were really a terrible situation. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident that our fire codes in the United States, that system would never have passed. Uh, the, the one we're talking about is NFPA 285 testing. And it, I, I, it would never have passed that. It also, it was a reskin. So the, the oh, was it a reskin of an existing the fire stopping or the the floor stopping that we we normally see in a curtain wall or a, a high rise building where every floor is stopped. Um, that was that was not performed as part of the reskinning effort. It, they might have actually had the stopping in the original skin, but it didn't matter at that point. Wow. But let's talk about stucco. I'm assuming that. Massive flammability is not a typical stucco failure. What? It, what? Go ahead. It's not. The failures are sometimes uh, judgmental of what classifies a failure. Uh, again, interesting. <laughs> we talked to uh, we talked earlier about sort of informing your clients on what to expect, mm -hmm. and it's getting that phone call. You know, maybe a couple years or even the first year, and just saying, "Hey, I've got this crack. What do you think?" And so you, as a as sort of a a building science guy, you go out there and you look at it and you begin to evaluate, well, is this a systemic condition or is this just something that's just popped up? And sometimes that telltale first crack can be a sign that something else is happening, like moisture is getting behind the stucco at some point. Uh, I know Matt and I just looked at a property a couple, uh, a couple months ago and the failure was actually at the coping, at the top of, of the roof. There were some other issues in the, in the project, but that fundamental flaw was not a flaw by the stucco installer or the stucco contractor. It was a flaw by the roofer. And their ability to sort of complete that skin all the way to you know its closure point. The water is gonna wanna drive its way out and it's gonna wanna go through the easiest path and sometimes it gets caught between there. And in that case, it was trying to push its way out mm -hmm. of the stucco. So you get this sort of, uh, I don't know, what the, what's the technical term? You get this ghosting, essentially, that mm -hmm. starts to occur as it's driving those salts out of the, of the Portland mm -hmm. cement mixture towards the exterior surface. Good. Efflorescence, that's what you're looking for. Efflorescence. Yeah. So before, I realize, actually, we didn't go through the control joints in the lath installation. And, but, but we and, skipped that, remember? Yeah. <laughs> Those are going to be woven into the failures, right? Like if it's, you have a punched opening, if you always see stucco cracks at the corners of it or something, that might be something with how the lath was installed. Or There's, These are going back to these X factors in this checklist and sort of the, the regimented approach that you have to have to just sort of discipline the project to. And if you're not disciplining the project to certain standards, you're opening yourselves up for these X factors. Like, oh, well, we didn't tie those uh, accessories. We, we just tied them maybe every 12 inches. What would well, be an accessory, excuse me? An accessory is like a, a, either it could be a decorative joint 
or it could be an actual control joint. These are, these are bent metal pieces. Sometimes they're aluminum extruded pieces, but any sort of accessory has to tie into that lath. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't expect the stucco to remain part of the system unless it's all part of this continuous lath. And there's a lot of tedious work that goes into tying and screwing and tying and screwing all that together. Wow. And in the age of let's put this up and oh, we got to open tomorrow and it's September 21st, we got one week to go. Those are where the shortcuts maybe start to and you know come into the play. Mm -hmm. What about fastening the lath? So the lath, and I guess just to back up with Please. the with the accessories, Please. you know, you, as Brian mentioned, you've got control joints, and that's usually sort of a W-shaped piece of metal. If you cut it in cross-section to look at it, it's sort of W-shaped. That gets fastened to the building, and again, it's an interruption. It's intended to be an interruption in the plane of the stucco that allows it to expand and contract. To they, prevent cracking. To, yes. If you don't do that, it will create its own joints, which are called <laughs> cracks, right? Uh, except they're not nice and straight and neat, and, and architects don't like that. Right. Um, and owner, building like owners don't like, them, don't like it either. Um, ex other, another common type of accessory is a casing bead. So it's just, it's a sort of a J-shaped piece of metal mm -hmm. that gets put around framed openings like windows and doors. And it gives you a nice clean place to stop the stucco. The stucco gets troweled into it. It helps set the depth of the stucco so you get the right ah. thickness. And then it creates a nice edge for you to put a sealant joint between Metal. the stucco and the window or door or other interruption. And that's super important because that window or door is attached to the building frame and it's not moving. And as the stucco expands and contracts, you need it to be isolated from that, that important. dissimilar material. Because if you don't, it gets bound up on it, right? And then as the stucco needs to move, it's being restrained by that window or door, mm -hmm. and it could cause cracking. And then the other thing that could happen is you could just get water in. If it separates from it, you, you could get a lot of water in that space. Um, backing up to the, well, oh, go ahead. Don't forget weep screeds. Now I was about to say the bottom of the wall. Weep screeds, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And absolutely, it's important to provide drainage. Because the water goes through stucco. I think a lot of people don't realize that. Well, some water goes through stucco. Hopefully, most, most of the of water doesn't. is shed at the face of the stucco. Yeah. You do provide that weather barrier back there um, that's intended for incidental water that gets through the stucco. It's important to control the cracking and to have good jointing because you want 95% of the water to be shed at the face of the stucco. And the reason for that is that you have to attach that lath at seven inches on center at every stud. Whew. Think how many fa thousand fasteners that is so in any given wall. So yeah, you put a high quality weather barrier on it and hopefully it's got some ability to seal around the fasteners that you put in there, but you're still poking a whole, whole bunch of, of holes in it. Thousands. And you're you building know, a, also a blind fastener at that point because you've got your building paper, your building felt that's essentially black, right? Mm -hmm. And if you miss, do you pull the fastener out? Uh, <laughs> that's another podcast. <laughs> but you're not getting the nice gasketing that all of the weather barriers have been tested to. There's a nail sealability test, hmm. and all the manufacturers can pass it because it's it's a eight penny nail or whatever that's driven in at a very precise ninety degree angle to the substrate and. Oh yeah, it's it passes the nail sealability test, but that doesn't happen with lath. Remember, this expanded mesh is diamonds that are all sort of contorted because they need to have that tooth to grip the Portland cement 
mixture that's mm -hmm. it's got to get trout onto. Yeah. And so your fasteners actually a lot of times, uh, in the case of, of many installations, it's driven at a slight angle, or it's held off because it's the right. lath is in between yeah. it. So that's why having some sort of uh, meat or, or thickness to that weather barrier helps in stucco applications to give you a little bit of redundancy for that nail sealability. Yeah. This is awesome. And you definitely can say you can talk about this all day. So, all right, so let's get back to where we were on that topic of uh, the way you install the control joints and the way you install the lath impacts the failures you might see. Well, it's your, it's your structure, it's your bone, it's your skeletal system, right? So you, you want to have solid bones, right? You don't want any breaks in your bones or the breaks <laughs> that you do, you want to be sure about it. Uh, so we mentioned earlier sort of the industry standards that are out there that are written into the specifications uh, have a very regimented certain way of how things are being installed. And Matt sort of touched on, you know, the spacing all these things matter, and people should recognize that you see a guy out there with a ruler measuring the spacing of wire ties or the spacing of fasteners. It's there for a reason. It's not to make people's life mm -hmm. uh, miserable by counting fasteners. It's generally these are the predicted uh, areas that you have to put the fasteners. And so back to the standards, there's, a, there's an ongoing debate on whether or not a control joint uh, is, is receiving all the pressure of the stucco expanding and contracting, and therefore, does the lath have to be broken behind the control joint? Does it, Matt? Well, well so per <laughs> per one of the standards that Brian is talking about, which one? And it's that's okay to say. ASTM C1063. <laughs> yeah, not proprietary. This is, uh, so ASTM C1063 is referenced in the building code, so it's not optional. It's it's something that contractors are required to comply with. The, that requires that the lath be interrupted at these control joints. And uh, that, the intent of that is to truly free up the joint so that it can, it can expand and contract. If you think about it, if you're, trying to, if you're trying to allow something to move, you're not gonna put reinforcement across it right. to pin it together, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so it really doesn't work unless you interrupt the lath. As, a, as an engineer, to me, I, I, I tend to think about stucco like a concrete slab on a wall. And so, you know, oftentimes, you know, you will go ahead and clip every other bar at a contraction joint and a slab. You'll do something mm -hmm. to yes. intentionally weaken that plane because if you just looked at the transformed area, to, if I can throw out an engineering term, if you look at the actual stiffness of the steel wires crossing that joint versus the tensile, the tensile strength and the stiffness of the stucco, the wire just dwarfs. The, the stucco is not a, a strong material. Uh, steel is 36,000 pounds per square inch of tensile strength, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the, you, can, you can put a joint in a wall, but unless you actually interrupt the, the steel crossing the joint, the stucco doesn't really doesn't know that it's it. there, and it, it doesn't allow it to move like you want it to. Mm -hmm. Now, the contractors around here, and Yet the controversy, there is an argument against it. The con many of the contractors in Texas don't like cutting the lath, and they will swear up and down that they shouldn't have to do it. The reason they don't like doing it is because it's just way easier to run long sheets of lath all the way down the wall, and then to get a control joint with a what they call it, the, the thickness of the accessory is called the ground, mm -hmm. the, the ground depth. 
And instead of getting a 7 8 inch accessory and putting it on first and running the lath up to it, uh, or or just cutting the lath and putting the joint a thin thinner ground on top of it, they like to just run the lath across the wall in big sheets because they can get a lot of production that way. And then they like to tie the accessory on top of it. They like to tie the joint thinner. on top of it, a thinner joint. And because the lath is furred out, you know, they, they use a thinner joint right there. Um, it's just more work for them to put it up and come back and try to snip the lath or to cut the lath first and put it up and align all the cut ends in a perfect straight edge right where that control joint is going to be, right? That requires taking a tape measure out, measuring every sheet of lath. And so it is more work for them to, to cut the lath there. And um, many of them have gotten away without doing it on projects and maybe they haven't noticed cracking on those particular projects. And so, you know, from their standpoint, I, you know, I, I believe that they believe what they're saying when mm -hmm. they think it, it doesn't make a difference. But again, it's like I was saying when we started out, we know it's good practice. We know it reduces cracking. Yes, they may have gotten away with it a couple of times, yeah. but in, you know, from our standpoint, we know it's one of those good practices. Well said. So Brian, from the user specifier perspective, are you as, um, do you say things to your clients along the lines of, well, if we don't cut the control joints, we can save a little bit of money <laughs> that, that never comes that into the conversation. It I mean, they're, they're expecting a building that has stucco and brick and stone and glass. And that's what I kind of start off with. If, if we're architects and we have this palette of materials to use, we should be able to use stucco correctly and we should install it correctly. And that's what the owner, you know, is expecting. I think uh, I'm going to rely on the institutional standards and, you know, carefully selecting good uh, consultants that help us kind of reinforce that uh, standard out there in the field because again of the ten different X factors that could go into achieving a good or or not so good installation we're gonna try to check off as many of those boxes as we can mm -hmm. okay so that, as you say some of the things for a different podcast because one would be if page specifies it and the general contractor you know agrees to it but the installer doesn't do it you know, where did the communication break down? But that is, that is a different... It happens all the time. It does, okay. And... Yeah, the blanket spec out there... Right not, not with Paige, but in <laughs> oh, general, it happens all the time. The blanket spec has 1063 written all over it. And so then if there is a, a failure, and it's determined that a control joint isn't functioning properly, and I guess that failure would be like uh, more cracking than typical? Or? Well, you're, you, you should be out there looking at the, you know, the... The product as it's going on, as the lath going on, so you uh -huh. catch that before it happens. Yeah. So emerging trends in stucco, is it moving toward, uh, like EFs is starting to dominate? I know continuous insulation is much more of a code requirement now. Right. Anything about stucco? And I think I think it's entirely likely that we'll see more EFs on buildings. Um, EFs got a black eye 20 years ago when it was first starting to be used in this country, maybe more than 20 years ago, 30 years ago, in the 80s, yeah. it got a black eye because of the systems that they were using and the way that they were putting them on. And the EAST systems that are out today are different. Mm -hmm. In fact, they got renamed. Didn't someone say there's like a... Yes, there are some different names. There, Yes. Yes, there are some different names because CIFS. there were actually insurance companies out there that were telling contractors that mm -hmm. we're not going to insure your projects if you build them with EAST on them. And So you rebrand. Yeah, so they're doing a reboot. Seeps is continuous insulation finish system. Right, but yes. the fundamental is that a drainage plane 
has been created at the backside of the new the new installation. That's mm -hmm. that's the big idea, if yeah. you will, that took and care. flashings at openings. And well, such, yeah. we should have had those in the 1980s too. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Uh, without that drainage plane, it, it was just like a sponge, and anything that got behind it, it would just transmit that moisture to yeah. to the back. So, the new systems have their place in the market, and it it is. It is difficult to do, or more difficult, I should say, to do traditional three-coat stucco over continuous insulation. There's mm -hmm. some some nuances that have to be worked out, and the ability to do that off of Z-Gert or other means, uh, you know, there's thermal breaks that start to occur there. So I think the industry will find its balance point between uh, EFs and, and traditional. Um, because CI, continuous insulation, is not going away. It's mm -hmm. only going to increase every building cycle. And neither is stucco is going away. So let's do two last definitions to wrap up here. Um, so, Brian, you just used the word Z-Gert. Is oh, that yes. a new type of yogurt? Or <laughs> what is a Z-Gert? Yeah, it's, it's Greek. It's vanilla uh, <laughs> with uh, strawberries on the bottom. Uh, Z-Gerts are commonly used in Texas. I know uh, maybe some of your other listeners are in other parts of the country where thermal breaks have become a big issue. Um, in Texas, uh, the contributing factor is known. It is, uh, there's been plenty of white paper research that, that the Z-Gert is just basically a bent piece of metal that's holding off the face of the sub-sheathing. Uh, uh, whatever skin it is. It could be metal panels, it could be stucco, it could mm. be... So the stucco is the cladding, it's heavy, and it has to get its support all the way through the installation, way back at the structural wall. That's right. But, but that, that's, that's, that class of product is called a Z-Gert. That's right. And there's engineering that, that proves out that transfer load path all the way there's back. There's different types. Right. And what Brian's describing, the bent metal piece of, bent piece of sheet metal in a Z-shape that gets fastened on the wall, that's a Z-Gert. The other kinds of systems that are out there, and there are several yeah. that are being marketed now, have generally some sort of composite material. For thermal. To prevent thermal transfer. The, a low conductivity material that is intended to prevent the, the transfer of thermal energy through that insulation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then a lot of people are also fastening their stucco directly through the insulation into... Which is long fasteners. With long fasteners and big discs on the end. And uh, there's some research out there that, that, uh, su that supports the idea of being able to do that. I think we're going to have to see over time how well that works, mm -hmm. uh, whether or not you have some support issues that develop over time. Um, but there's some testing that's been done that says that that's okay. So there are papers out there. Uh, as Brian said, this is an evolving uh, building. The building construction doesn't move super quick. No. And a lot of times people will rush out and adopt a new system and it has to be in place for a few years for the problems to start to show up. Yeah. And so some of the things that are being tried for attaching stucco, we're, we're still kind of trying those things. They're sort of in their trial period and we'll see how they work. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. So your, your um, vocabulary lesson is something you threw out a long time back. I've always been wanting to ask about this and put you on the spot a little bit. So you mentioned that in, in the synthetic stucco, they can have this admix, and the admix might include polymer modifiers. Mm -hmm. And you just kept going. 
So could you get in a little bit what a polymer modifier is or does? Or Sure. A polymer, like one common type. So, actually, define polymer, if you wouldn't mind. A polymer is a synthetic molecule. Well, I suppose it could be an organic molecule, but it's it's kind of like a glue. So it's a polymer. It's simple. Right. Many mers. Like plastic is a polymer, fundamentally, okay. right? Okay. Rubber is a polymer. That's a generic Because there's one molecule repeated many times. Right. And usually it's a, it's a hydrocarbon molecule, and you can take the hydrocarbon molecule and string it together. That's what's great about carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, is if you look at all the different things that can be built out of those molecules, it's millions probably of different products that are built out of those hydrocarbon chains. So it's a polymer. That's a polymer. Right, and uh, so one of the more common polymers uh, that are that's added to stucco and eaves uh, is a latex, and so it's basically like a liquid rubber that gets mixed in there, and it, it replaces some of the water in in the Portland cement mix, and it uh, helps make it less permeable. It helps to improve bond strength between layers. Um, it reduces shrinkage, so it's a good thing. And that's how, when they add that polymer, they're able to use thinner layers mm -hmm. of, uh, for the one coat systems and for the exterior insulation and finish systems. Also, color retention is improved. Mm. Uh, that's one thing that people don't think about sometimes. You, you have point. to make a fundamental decision from the get-go uh, when you're specifying stucco is what sort of finish coat are you looking for? Are you looking for that old feel that has some variation in color or a monolithic sort of color fast right. system? Uh, and then some of these, these finish coat systems have an elastomeric property to them that will allow that uh, latex, if you will, to bridge small gaps, small cracks. And so that's another level of sort of uh, protection that you can provide and it's also how a lot of stucco that begins to see some failure is um, mitigated that with a new finish coat that has some of those elastomeric properties. Mm -hmm. And the color matching can be an issue, right? Uh, if you do um, like color integral stucco. In the it's huge coat. because it's just like uh, uh, if, you, if you ever try to do a large uh, cement placement or concrete placement uh, they want the batch plant to be queued up, to be continuous on that project until we stop. And that's what happens on a stucco project as well. It rained the night before, so the sand that the guys are using the day after the rain has a little bit oh, right. different content or maybe a little bit of <laughs> something happened to, to the hydrated lime. And you can get some color variation, but to others that's actually part of the seductiveness of that old world feel and they're they're totally good with it but clients have to understand what they're buying are they buying a color fast stucco finish coat or are they they're getting that sort of uh, color embedded what what looks good on a mediterranean villa may not look good on a super modern building right yeah more, more color integral wow well there you go listeners there's a lot to say about stucco thank you guys very much today for your time You're thanks for having us Okay, thank you guys very much again for listening, and don't forget to look at the show notes. There's a link to this stucco seminar coming up next Friday, Friday the 13th, ba-boom, here in Austin. Hope to see you there.